As we uh, approach this section in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse, verses 30 through 44, we come upon the only miracle done by Jesus that was recorded in all four of the Gospels, if you don't, of course, count the resurrection. But the feeding of the 5,000 was a miracle that the Holy Spirit chose to record in each of the four Gospels. Now, right away, that should tell us that God considers this a very important miracle. Whenever the Holy Spirit takes the trouble to tell us something four different times, he wants us, no doubt, to take note of it and to never forget the lessons he's trying to teach us through it. And I think that primarily the one lesson, the main lesson that God is trying to teach us through the feeding of the 5,000 is that impossible problems are God's specialty. One man put it this way. He said, we are all faced with a series of great opportunities disguised as unsolvable problems. And if you approach problems that way, I'll tell you what, you get a whole different picture of what's going on. You'll approach them with a new insight, a new kind of a zeal, uh, and a new hope, an excitement, actually, if you approach your problems in that regard, that they're just great opportunities disguised as unsolvable problems. As we get into the story here, remember that John the Baptist has just been recently beheaded. And Jesus has been secluded for a time, kind of in mourning, sorrowing over his cousin John. But also remember that Jesus has, just prior to this, also sent out the 12 apostles two by two to go out and to preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. Remember, as we approach this section in, Matthew, in Mark's gospel, we are coming now into the last year and a half of Jesus' ministry. And that's very important because now he's going to begin more and more to withdraw himself from the multitudes and is going to begin more and more to focus on teaching his disciples because soon he's going to be taken from them and he knows that in a very short while they're going to have to pick up where he has left off. And so even now he's beginning to pass the mantle to them. He's sending them out to minister. He's giving them a taste of what it's like now to minister because soon they're going to be doing all the ministering because he's going to be taken from them. And so it says in verse 30, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Now the disciples came back from this ministry that they were on and they were excited but exhausted. They had been healing the sick and casting out demons and teaching about the kingdom and they were excited about what had happened but were exhausted. And the nature of ministry is such oftentimes that you find that you're expend, you expend yourself quite a bit. And that's pretty much what it's all about, giving of yourself, you know, ministering to others. There is a certain amount of um, kind of an interesting phenomenon that happens. Whenever you give of yourself to someone else, you receive. So often when you are tired, but an opportunity comes along to minister and you do, it has a way of refreshing you in a strange kind of way. Remember when Jesus was in John 4, was uh, by the well there in Samaria, and he hadn't eaten for a while, and his disciples were aware of it, and he looked like he was weak and all. And they said, Lord, you know, you need to eat something, you know. And he said, I have food that you know not of. And then they went into town to buy some food and provisions. And while they were gone, the woman by the, of Samaria came and sat down by Jesus. And he gave her the gospel by likening himself to living water. You know the story. And after they came back and after he administered to her, he was refreshed. He was strengthened. See, that happens oftentimes. But you know what? There does come a time when you need then to get away from the crowd in ministry and spend some time alone with the Lord. Come away with me, he said, to a deserted place. There are times when there's just no other way around it. You need to get alone, just you and the Lord. Withdraw from the multitudes because if you let them, no doubt these guys could have ministered 24 hours a day, seven days a week until they dropped dead, basically. There's always going to be another need, always going to be another person that needs to be ministered to. And you're to give of yourself, but you also have to realize that, you know what, you've got to use your head too. And so Jesus will call us all aside from time to time. Even when things are going great and it's busy and people are, you know, 
he'll say, come along with me. You need to get away from the crowd for a while to be alone with me. And so that's what they did. And uh, they were up near the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And so they got into a boat and they went across to the area of Bethsaida, which had some deserted areas around it. But the multitude, it said, verse 32, they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. So you know how it is. Uh, you know, when you see some people running, it's like, what's going on? Where are you going? You know, hey, Jesus is going around. He's headed for Bethsaida. Jesus was. And all of a sudden, as they're running around the, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, they're picking up more and more people from the surrounding communities. And they actually, it's only about six miles across, and on a clear day, you can see exactly where a person is going by boat. They knew where he was headed. And so they just scurried around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee and picked up a whole bunch of people and actually beat them there and were waiting for them when they arrived, okay? Some would say, well, but isn't that great? I mean, look at how popular he is. What a successful ministry. I mean, it says everywhere that the multitudes were thronging him, that people were flocking to see him. Why at this time in his ministry, when his popularity was at the highest level, would he want to start withdrawing himself from the multitudes and all? Why, why would he do that, you know? Because in John's Gospel, as John records this, John gives us some insight that a lot of these folks were following the Lord simply because they enjoyed the miracles that he did and they liked the physical benefits that they had received from his ministry, but they really weren't disciples in the sense that they were following him for the right reasons, because they loved him with all their heart, wanted to give him control of their lives, and to be used by him for his glory. That really wasn't where they were coming from. You have to understand that. See, from a human perspective, somebody would look at that and go, what, what a successful ministry he's got. I mean, wow, I mean, the miracles are drawing them. Isn't that what we want? No, not necessarily. See, that's what the mentality is today, isn't it? Oh, let's get them together. Let's do some miracles. You know, let's have some, some high-energy meetings, and let's heal a few people and do some miracles, and the people will throng, and they certainly do. But Jesus didn't want thrill-seekers. Too many people today, and unfortunately, he, as he discouraged these people from following him, so many in the church today encourage this kind of Thing. They encourage these kind of followers. The very thing Jesus tried to discourage. He knew the hearts of men. He did not want thrill seekers. He did not want Holy Ghost junkies that were only looking to get you know, a new Holy Spirit high every meeting. I mean, he didn't want that. And he knew, in his ultimate infinite wisdom, he knew. He could pour himself into these multitudes, and if he only did that, and then went to the cross and died and rose and ascended into heaven... That would have been pretty much it for his ministry. It would have come to a screeching halt. It would have wound up running down and just, that would have been it. Because the multitudes weren't following him for the right reason. So after he was gone, they'd latch on to the next celebrity that came along that would thrill them. See? So he knew that he needed to withdraw from them more and more to focus on his men. Because they would be really taking up the mantle and going forward from this point. And yet, don't misunderstand, he still loved the multitudes. That's the point we have to see here. Because even though he knew that their hearts were not always right, and a lot of them were following him for the wrong reasons, yet he still had compassion on them. As they beat him around the Sea of Galilee to the other side, and were waiting for them, verse 34, when Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude, and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So we began to teach them many things. Now there, again, is a glimpse of the beautiful, sacrificial heart of Jesus. I mean, he is the example that we must follow. It's not easy, of course, but he is the example. Jesus Christ was so selfless, so concerned with the needs of others, that even though he was tired, even though he was hurting, even though at this point in his ministry, no doubt the cross was beginning to loom more and more, you know, in the horizon. He was becoming more and more aware of its, the hour it was coming near where he was going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And yet even at this late hour in his ministry, he still put himself aside 
when he saw people that had a need, they were like sheep without a shepherd. He was moved with compassion and he ministered to them. What a beautiful example that is for us because we're so inclined to get into ourselves. I know how I would have been. I would have probably got frustrated and said, look, can you guys give me a little time to myself? I mean, you know, all I've been doing is ministering to all you guys and I need some time. That's not what Jesus did. And it really makes me realize that that's exactly how I need to be. Now, of course, obviously, you have to use your head too. Even Jesus got away. And there were times when he got away and nobody found him and he needed that time. A lot of times his time was in the morning. As we read earlier in Mark's Gospel, how he got up very early in the morning before the breaking of day and got alone with his father. That was the pattern of his life. And we're going to see as we move closer to the end of his life now, before the cross, he not only spends the morning in prayer, but he begins to spend a lot of the evenings and sometimes all night in prayer as he begins to move closer to the cross because he was drawing strength from his father. But it says he was moved with compassion. The Greek word there is an interesting word. It literally means to climb into the skin of another. Jesus Christ had compassion for these people. When we talk about having compassion for somebody, we need to realize that that means basically that you climb into their skin and you stand in their place and feel what they're feeling and know how it would feel to be where they are. And then you minister to them because of where they are and because of what they're going through. That's compassion, see? It doesn't just stand on the sidelines and say, oh, you poor thing. Well, I'll pray for you. No, it climbs into the skin of another to feel what they're feeling, to experience somewhat of what they're experiencing with the ultimate desire then to minister to them in what they're going through. The ultimate act of compassion, of course, was the incarnation, where Jesus Christ literally stepped into our skin, where deity became humanity, where eternity invaded time, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ literally stepped into our skin because He had compassion on a world that was lost and going to hell. And His compassion led Him to become one of us and then ultimately to go to the cross to die for us because that's what compassion is. It's getting into the skin of another for the purpose of ministering to their needs. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did through the Incarnation. And so He, he had compassion on them. He saw them as sheep uh, without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. Now when the day was, uh, was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages, and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. John tells us that the disciples came and said, Lord, look, uh, it's getting late. And these folks need lodging. They need food. We don't have anything out here. Send them away now. Let's break for the day so these guys can go into town, get something to eat, and find some place to stay for the night because uh, this is a deserted place out here. And so, verse 37, But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. Now, John tells us that after Jesus said this, apparently... He turned to Philip, who was standing there, and he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? So he said to them, Look, you give them, you, Lord, send them away, that they might get something to eat and find a place to stay. The Lord said, You give them something to eat. Philip, where shall we go to buy bread that these may eat? And John quickly adds, This he said to test him, because he knew what he himself would do. See, John looking back now, 60 years after the fact, in writing his gospel, he knew it was a test. He knew that Jesus wasn't asking Philip this question to gain some information or some plan by which they might use to feed all these people. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. The Lord always knows what he's going to do in any given situation, no matter how impossible or dismal it may look from our standpoint. But oftentimes what he does, and no doubt he was doing this with Philip, he brings us face to face with an impossible situation from a human standpoint. Then he kind of stands back and he kind of whispers in our ears, how are we going to solve this problem? What should we do here? And he does that not to get us to throw out suggestions, of course, but really to draw out our faith, you know? The wrong reply would be, well, Lord, let's take up a collection and see if we can't get some people to donate some money. We'll run out and buy some bread. 
He wasn't looking for that. What he was basically looking for was an answer like this. Well, Lord, I was hoping you would tell me because I'm just going to stand back here and see what you were going to do because I certainly don't have the ability or the resources to feed all these people. And so the Lord will do that. He will bring us face to face with these situations to see how we're going to react. It's a test of our faith. And usually the situation goes just a little bit farther than the last test went because our faith needs to be stretched just a little more each time. And so it's just a little bit bigger than the last test he put us through. But it's always designed to grow our faith step by step that ultimately we might become men and women of faith that will trust him like Abraham did as he grew. You know, Abraham was the great father of the faithful. The great man of faith that the Bible holds up is this great example of faith. But you know what? If you study Abraham's life, in the very beginning when God first called him to separate himself from his family and country and possessions to go into a land that I will show you, to cross over the Euphrates River into a country that I will show you and give you for a possession, we don't get it from Genesis so much, but piecing together different parts of the Bible, especially Stephen's defense in Acts chapter 7, we learn that what Abraham did was he took his family his possessions, his cousin or his nephew Lot, and he moved up river a little bit. He never even crossed over the Euphrates River. He wasn't totally obedient. He kind of went halfway and waited till after his father died, and then he went all the way. See, initially his faith was not all that strong. But over the years it grew, so much so that it climaxed in Genesis 22 when the Lord said to him, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him on a mount that I will show you. And it says the very next verse, Abraham got up early the next day, saddled his donkey, and took his son Isaac, and started on this journey without even, without even arguing with God, without even saying, but Lord, he got up early, he was totally obedient, because his faith had grown to a certain point that he realized that God was capable of solving this problem. And the problem basically was that, Lord, you've promised me through this son, Isaac, I'm going to have many descendants. He's not even married. He doesn't even have a, one child yet. If you want me to kill him, I'll do that. But you've got a problem, Lord, because you promised me through him I would have many descendants. So if I kill him, you're going to have to raise him from the dead. And that was basically the thing that saved Abraham, his faith that God could raise the dead. But it wasn't something that he had right away. It was something that, was, that grew over, the, over time, over the years. And that's how God works it with us. So he turns to Philip and he says, you know, where should we go out and buy some bread that they might eat? It says here, verse 37, And they said to him, Shall we go out and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Now, John's gospel is a little more precise. What Philip, and no doubt it was Philip who responded this way. The other disciples probably nodded their heads, and so it was all attributed to them. But what Philip said to the Lord was, Lord, if we go out and spend 200 denarii and buy bread, it'll only be enough to give each one a little bit. There was a big crowd on hand. A denarius was equal to a day's wage. So 200 denarii... Well, if a man makes $30,000 by today's standards, you're talking about $16,000, $17,000. It's like saying, Lord, should we buy $17,000 worth of bread? If we do, we'd only be able to give each one of them a little bit. See? Now, Philip, I love Philip, because Philip was the classic example of a statistical pessimist. Every church has got him. This is the kind of person, when he comes face to face with a problem... He immediately sits down with pencil and paper in hand or calculator and tries to figure out the odds involved in solving the problem. You know, well, let's see, now we've got 20,000 people, bread costs so much, and he's figuring this thing out in his mind all in a split second, okay? But he's figuring it out, and there's a lot of people like that when they're faced, come face to face with a colossal impossible problem, they still feel the need to sit down and figure it all out from a human standpoint. They calculate the odds you know, involved in solving this problem, and then they pray, but their prayer is always based on you know, the fervency and the power and the faith with which they pray is always based on the odds they come up with. So if the odds are 80% 80, 80 in our favor, well, I pray with a lot of fervor and a lot of gusto and a lot of certainty. If it's more like you know, 20% uh, you know, that I'm going to be able to solve this 
then my prayers don't seem to have much uh, zest to them because I've already in my mind figured out there's no human way. Philip already figured out, Lord, there's no way. See, in his mind he went through the mental calculations and boom, there's no way. Even 200 denarii would only give each one a tiny bit and we don't have anywhere near that kind of money. There's no way, Lord. For people like Philip, these kind of folks, to walk by faith and to uh, live by faith and all drives them crazy. Any kind of uncertainty, any kind of step of faith drives them crazy. I mean, the money's got to be in the bank before we can make a move here. You know, to take a step in faith goes against everything in their human nature. I mean, it's like, no, no way. I mean, we we got to have the money in the bank. How, how could you even talk about something? See, the Phillips of the world are notorious for pointing out why something can't be done. They're, they're the pessimists. They're the first ones to point out to you why you can't do that, why it's impossible. But also often they're focusing on the problem and not on the problem solver. They're looking through the eyes of flesh and not really the eyes of faith. And that's where the problem comes in. And that's what Jesus was no doubt trying to accomplish in Philip's life because he knew Philip. He knew all of his men. He knew Philip was the statistical pessimist. That's no doubt why he turned to him and singled him out to ask him the question because he knew. Here was a guy that would tend to look at the problem through the eyes of flesh. Jesus wanted him to look at it through the eyes of faith. Now, where Philip was the statistical pessimist, Andrew was a little better. He was more of a guarded optimist because it says here that while Philip was calculating in his mind the probabilities against feeding all these people, Andrew was out trying to scrounge up some sack lunches. Okay, So he had begun to move through the crowd and try to find out what limited resources were out there. Let's try to let's try to solve this problem uh, in a way. Let's go out and see what kind of resources we have. And he finds out there's one small kid that's got a sack lunch. It's five loaves and two fish. And he brings them, this kid up to Jesus and says, Well, uh, we've got here a small boy. He's got uh, five barley loaves and two small fish. But what is that? What is so little among so many? So... You know, he's not quite like Philip in the sense that Philip just didn't even try. Andrew went out and at least tried to solve the problem, but really, in the final analysis, his faith wasn't any better than Philip's. You would think by this time, these guys would have learned a couple things. After they saw Jesus raise the dead and heal the sick and cast out demons and cause the lame to walk and the blind to see and all of that so you would think by this point they would be able to say hey this is nothing this is a piece of cake lord i mean well you raised the dead you, you i saw you make that crippled guy who was lame for 38 years to stand up and walk man this is nothing you got to realize here it says that there were five thousand men matthew's gospel tells us that there were five thousand men besides women and children so realistically there were anywhere from 15 to 20,000, maybe more people around Jesus that day. It was quite a crowd. And it seemed that all these people that were around Jesus, all these folks, it just seemed like even for Jesus, this was an impossible situation. Now, of course it wasn't, and that's what he was about to show them. But it seems that regardless of all that he did before this, this seemed to stretch their faith more than it was able to stretch. And again, that's what really what Jesus was up to, trying to build their faith even more. Remember, he's about to turn the kingdom over to them. He's about to turn the work of God over to them. And they needed faith. See, that's why he had to work on them. That's why he had to constantly stretch their faith. But you know what? We kind of look at these guys and kind of roll our eyes sometimes because, gee, God, come on, guys. Look at what Jesus already did, and you're doubting that he could feed these people. But you know what? We all do the same thing. We look at the situation, and we always seem to judge it by our own human abilities. And if it's something that we're capable of handling, then we pray with a lot of, you know, a lot of surety and faith. But if it's something that seems to go beyond our human capabilities, well, then all of a sudden now we're, it's like it's hopeless. You know, Lord, there's no way. What is so little among so many kind of an attitude, right? And uh, again, using the illustration of the cold and the cancer thing, you know, how many of us pray over a cold with a lot more faith than we do over somebody with terminal cancer? But why? If you think about it, the same God who can easily cure a cold can cure cancer. I mean, nothing, nothing is too hard for him. 
He created the universe and all that is in it. He raises the dead. Why would that be hard for him to do? And so it's important that we see things the way Jesus is trying to get us to see things. Verse 38 says, And when they had found out how, many, how much food they had, they said, Well, we have five loaves and two fish. John tells us, they said, We have a boy here that has five barley loaves and two small fish. Now, the loaves, the word there for loaves in the Greek means a small wafer. We're all victims of these biblical movies that we see, you know, where we see, you know, Jesus multiplying big, giant, round loaves of bread and pouring out these three and a half pound bass out of the basket like he's multiplying. This, this was a sack lunch. I mean, this kid wasn't carrying around three pound fish in his uncooked in his knapsack. I mean, this was a lunch. What it was was not loaves. They were more like barley crackers unleavened, dry, and the fish were actually the small pickled variety like sardines. And no doubt they were given just to simply kind of add some moisture to the barley crackers because they were dry, they were unleavened. You know, that's really what's going on here. Barclay, William Barclay, the commentator, and I enjoy his commentaries, but he comes up with some strange things once in a while. For some reason, William Barclay seems to want to explain away miracles out of the Bible, and I'm not sure why he feels the need to do that. I mean, you know, he's, he's got a lot of good things to say, comes up with some great background stuff, but then when you come to a miracle, he's always trying to explain it away somehow. And when he comes to this miracle, he said, well, he said really what happened was that uh, people had brought their lunches with them, and they had them kind of slip into the lining of their cloaks, and nobody wanted to bring out their lunch because nobody really wanted to share. Everyone was basically, un was basically being selfish. They knew if they pulled out their lunch, they couldn't eat in front of all these other hungry people. So they, they kept it to themselves. But here was yet one small boy who was willing to share his lunch. And so when everyone saw him share his lunch, a great wave of conviction came across the crowd and they all pulled out their lunches. And so the miracle was all these selfish people became unselfish. And I think to myself, gag me, come on. That's not what happened at all. I mean, you're taking away from the obvious point of the story, that Jesus Christ multiplied miraculously the loaves and the fish to feed this multitude. Something else here that we need to understand, barley was the grain of the poor. Poor people would eat barley because that was a cheaper grain. And so this young boy had barley loaves or crackers in his lunch, which indicated that he was a poor boy from a poor family, which says something very important to us, that even if you're a child from a poor family and you haven't got much at all, if you give it willingly to Jesus, he'll take whatever little bit you have, which you've offered willingly out of a good heart, and he'll multiply it and use it to do great things with. That's the thing the Holy Spirit is trying. That's the miracle. Yes, Jesus multiplying the loaves and all, but yet the thing behind it that the Holy Spirit was trying to teach us is that it's not important how many talents we have, how many resources we have, how many abilities we have. It's only important that we're willing to give whatever little we have to the Lord to be used in His service, and He will take it, and He will multiply it and use it for great things. So often we let Satan come around and whisper in our ear, you're nothing special. You've got nothing to offer God. What makes you think he's going to want to use you? You have no abilities. You have no talents, really. You're no, nothing special. Why do you think God could ever use you? And when we begin to listen to that, we begin to say, yeah, you're, you know, I, I am nothing special. And we all know we aren't. And I don't have any real talents or abilities to give to the Lord. Hey, that's okay. That's the point of the story. Because in the hands of Jesus, a little goes a long way if you allow him to bless you and break you. And see, that's exactly what he did with the loaves. Verse 41, he blessed the loaves and he broke them and then he gave them out. And you know what? It doesn't matter what abilities you have or don't have. It only matters how available you are. See, ability doesn't matter. It's availability. That's what matters. 
Because God will supply the abilities. God will supply the... When he told the disciples, you feed them, did he understand they didn't have the resources to do that? Of course. What he was telling them is, you have the faith that I can feed them through you. I'll do the miracle. You hand out the bread. It's a kind of a, a partnership, if I can put it that way, even though the Lord doesn't need partners for anything. He's chosen, though, to enter into a partnership with his church. And he doesn't ask us to have the ability or the power. He just wants ordinary people that are available. He'll do the work. I mean, he'll do the miracles, but will be his hands to distribute and to help to uh, feed uh, or minister to those around us. And so, verse 39, he then commanded them to make them sit, all sit down in groups uh, on the green grass. And so they sat down in ranks and hundreds and in fifties. And uh, remember again, there was like 20,000 people here, okay, everywhere. So the Lord made them sit down in groups of fifties and hundreds. And this was no doubt to help to make aisleways by which the disciples could move among the crowd and distribute the food. It was just practical because it helped to facilitate the distribution of the food. But notice, it also tells us that we serve a God of order and not confusion and chaos. God is not a God of confusion. God is a God of order. And it's to me, it's indicated here, you know. It wasn't a, a mad free-for-all, everyone grabbing for food. He made everyone sit down orderly in groups, to facilitate the distribution, but it says here he commanded them to sit down in the green grass. Now, that's interesting to me, first of all, because that indicates to me Mark was present at this occasion. That's a detail that you wouldn't tend to put into a story unless you had been there and had seen it. Uh, it's one of those little unimportant details that really an eyewitness would include in a story. So it tells me that Mark was there, number one. Number two, it tells me it was springtime. Because in Israel, the grass doesn't stay green long, only in the springtime for a while. Uh, and that's going to be important to the next part of the, of the chapter when he begins to walk on water, that we know that. But also, think about it. He said, I want to feed you, basically, but you have to sit down first. And I think that the Lord could only really feed us and minister to us. When we stop rushing around and take time to sit, like Mary took time to sit at his feet while Martha dashed around the house so obsessed with service, and the Lord said to her, Martha, you're so encumbered with many things. And boy, do I know how that feels. You're so stressed out and burdened with so many things, Martha. But Mary has found the better part. He didn't put Martha down for her service. He just simply elevated Mary for her wanting to fellowship because Mary was the one who was really, and if you read the story carefully, Mary had helped her sister. It wasn't that Mary, would, we, we tend to look at Mary as the lazy one who just wanted to sit around all day while Martha did all the work. The story implies that Mary had helped her sister, but she knew there was a point when you had, served, you had worked enough and now you needed to sit. Martha had no balance in her life. Hers was a constant obsession with serving and running around and being anxious over many details. Mary knew when to serve and when to sit. That was the whole point. And that's why Jesus commended her. Martha, what you're doing is good, but Mary, she's found the better part, see? So it's important that we understand that if we're going to feed on the Lord in a spiritual sense, we need to sit down, you know? Stop rushing around. I think it also presents a beautiful picture. Think about it of what Psalm 23 said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pasture. Here was a group of people sitting and lying down in green pasture as the shepherd was about to feed them. So it's a beautiful kind of a picture the Holy Spirit is painting here. Now verse 41, And when he had taken the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and the two fish he divided among them all. Again, I want you to see something here that's very important when we talk about impossible problems that God will uh, work out and all. What did he do first? He blessed the loaves, he thanked his heavenly Father, and then the miracle took place. See? That's a very important point. 
Because faith says, or faith implies, that we thank God. Before we ever see Him work the problem out, we thank Him because in His Word He said He would supply all of our needs, right? And even though we can't see any evidence of that at this moment, yet by faith I believe that, and I thank God for what He's already promised, and I trust by faith it's only a matter of time before it comes to pass, and you know what? That's when the miracle begins to take place. Remember this happened with Abraham? How when he was an old man, God promised him he was going to have a son? And what did he do? The Bible says he didn't waver at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strong in his faith and was assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. And so you see this old man dancing there in the desert, praising God, because God has given him a promise that he hasn't even begun to see the fulfillment of, but he knows if God has said something, you could take it to the bank. It's as sure as the sunrise tomorrow morning, right? I remember hearing stories about George Mueller, who opened up an orphanage in England years ago. And George was a tremendous man of faith, and he purposed in his heart. And by the end of his life, he, had, uh, he was feeding and housing 80,000 orphans in different places. That's a lot of mouths to feed. But George Mueller had purposed in his heart from day one, he was never going to ask man for anything but only trust God. And you can't believe the stories, the true stories that he experienced. There were times that they literally had nothing to eat in the orphanage, nothing. But they would set the table, they would sit down, and they would pray and give God thanks for the meal he was going to provide. And every single time, somehow a knock on the door would come. One time a guy knocked on the door and said um, uh, he had uh, some meat that was going to go bad. He had to get rid of it quickly and he said do you guys need any any meat and so they took the meat not after, long after that I mean just like in the next few minutes guy knocked on the door uh, he said my my milk cart is broken down outside this milk is gonna spoil I know you guys got an orphanage here would you like to have any milk every time God provided their needs because they thanked him they blessed him for what he had said and then just waited and that's when the miracle took place it's easy to bless God and praise God when there's food on the table. It's a lot harder to do it by faith when there's nothing on the table, nothing in the cabinets, and all you've got is a promise that my God shall supply all my needs. Well, you know what? That's when you know where your faith is really at. And so Jesus was, again, trying to bring out of his men faith that would propel them into the next phase of their ministry when he was taken from them. Also, I want you to see how did Jesus distribute the food through his disciples. Again, another very important point. Jesus Christ did the miracle, but the disciples were the channel, were the instruments that he used to provide the food to these people. Even as Jesus wants us to be the channels and instruments he uses to provide for the needs of others. I mean, again, he does the miracles, but we are his hands on the earth, see? And it's very important that we, when faced with an unsolvable problem that really is basically a great opportunity that God wants to let us in on, but it comes across looking like an unsolvable problem. It's then that we need to get our eyes on him, because so often what happens is we get our eyes into the problem, and then we do the very thing Philip and Andrew did, there's no way, or, well, we have a little resources, but what is so little among so many? And that's basically how many of us feel when faced with an insurmountable problem. So you know what we let happen? Nothing. We don't do anything. Our lack of faith paralyzes us from doing anything, and a great opportunity slips by because we just weren't willing to trust God to work it out and to do a miracle. That's so important, that God wants men and women who are willing to stand up and say, Lord, I don't have much to offer, and I'm certainly not very uh, talented or gifted, but I'm available. And if you can use me, Lord, I certainly know that you're the only one that can do the ministry and provide the needs and save the souls and whatever, but I'd like to be your hands, Lord. I'd like to just be involved. 
I'm available, and the Lord says, that's all I'm looking for. Because my eyes go to and fro about the face of the whole earth looking for someone whose heart is right that I might show myself strong through the Lord said. All he's looking for is a right heart. Somebody who's available. And so he gave it to his disciples because remember, he said, you give them something to eat. Remember that? So he multiplies the loaves and the fish, gives them to his disciples, and they distribute the food among the people. Verse 42, so they all ate and were filled. And the Greek says they were glutted. They were stuffed. Kind of important to think about because later on in John's gospel, the very next section says that Jesus used this miracle to, uh, to illustrate himself as the bread of life, which came down from heaven, the bread that he wanted them to eat, he said, you're only following me because you ate the loaves yesterday and were filled. He said, don't seek after that bread that perishes, but seek after that bread that I give that leads to everlasting life. For I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead, but I am the true manna, the, the bread of life. That manna represented me. And if you eat of me and believe in me and drink of my blood, you'll never die. You'll have everlasting life. And see, he was using this miracle, and maybe that's partly why the Holy Spirit recorded it, because the Holy Spirit wanted everyone to know that Jesus Christ is available to everybody. He's the bread of life. Think about it. Bread is the staff of life. It's the one food product that everybody in the world knows about and has access to, for the most part. If he would have said, I am the caviar of life, oh man, it would have left a whole bunch of people out. Right? But he wanted everybody to know that everybody would have access to him. And they were glutted, which implies to me, he was saying through that miracle, you can have as much of me or as little of me as you want. You can feed on me until you're glutted, or you can pick on me like some do, here and there. You won't be very strong, but... It's up to you, but as much of me as you want, you can have. I'm the bread of life. As much as you want to eat and feed on me, you're welcome to do that. Verse 42 or 43, And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now, why do you think twelve baskets? I think that's pretty obvious, right? Lord, where are we ever going to get that much food to feed these many people? Well, Jesus took a very small amount of food, multiplied to a great feast, took up 12 baskets afterward, and I'm convinced he gave a basket to each of the 12 disciples to help them remember <laughs> with God all things are possible. Now you say, well, wait a minute, 12 baskets? What did Jesus have? Why not 13 baskets? So he had one for himself. That's true. There were only 12 baskets taken up afterwards and given to the disciples, which meant if Jesus was going to eat from what this miracle he had done, it would have meant that they were going to have to give some of what they had in their baskets to him. And again, I see a very important principle there. When the Lord blesses us with whatever he does bless us with, he wants us to take some of that blessing, give it back to him. And and that would mean, in, in a lot of ways, back to other people. Uh, you know, it just giving back to him out of what he has blessed you with. Uh, so interesting that the Spirit of God is... Uh, is doing, you know, how the Lord wants us to give back to Him our time, our talents, our resources, money, uh, whatever, to be used for Him. Now, those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. As I said, Matthew tells us there were also women and children there. So it was about 20,000 or so people. If you turn to John, that's where Mark leaves it. But John goes just a little farther. Because in John chapter 6, verse 13 is where basically where Mark leaves his gospel off. But John adds a couple of verses. Verse 14, he says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, how he had multiplied the loaves and the fish, uh, they said, Truly, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to take and to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself alone. That's an important insight because it tells us that these people were so excited that Jesus Christ was able to feed them this great multitude with just a small amount of food. They wanted to take him at that moment and force him to become king. 
because in their minds, they wanted a Messiah who could supply their needs. They wanted a welfare state where they wouldn't have to work and toil in the fields, where they could just bring small amounts of food. He could wave his hands and they could all eat and be filled, you see? Again, looking at Jesus only in terms of their physical needs, very carnal approach to Christ. He knew their hearts. He knew that he was never going to to submit to that kind of carnality where he would just be there to be their uh, welfare state. You know, uh, that's not what he was about. He wanted their hearts, uh, not their stomachs, really. He knew their stomachs were important, but he only wanted to feed them so that he could use that opportunity then to minister to them about their greatest needs, which were not physical but spiritual in the area of bread from heaven, which would save their souls, not just feed their stomachs. But it's interesting to understand that they wanted a Messiah who would do everything for them but make no demands on them. Just like today. People want a God and a concept of God in Jesus Christ whereby God's there to meet their every need but makes no demands in their life. Notice that? That's what people want today in, in church. They want to have a relationship with God based on God meeting all their needs and blessing them and being there when they need Him but a God who makes no demands in their lives, who lets them pretty much do whatever they want, but they want to have this, this relationship with Him. Well, Jesus Christ was not about to be that kind of God to any of them. If He couldn't have their hearts, He didn't want anything else from them. That's why He withdrew Himself. And uh, that's why He began to pull away from the crowds more and more, because He knew that's what they were thinking. That's what they wanted. They wanted to force him to be king because they wanted him just to constantly bless them and heal the sick and multiply food. And, and, and really, they weren't looking to follow him for the right reasons. Now, just kind of wrapping this up and, and kind of looking at the lessons that the Holy Spirit is, again, teaching us through this story. I think the Holy Spirit, the reason he gave it four times in each of the four Gospels was because he wanted us to understand that impossible problems are God's specialty. You know? That no matter what crisis or problem we're facing right now, no matter how black or hopeless it looks from a human standpoint, we worship a God to whom nothing is impossible or nothing is hard. The Lord said, you know, I am the Lord. Is anything impossible for me? Or is anything hard for me? And of course not when you're talking about the Lord. And so the Lord, first of all, I'm sure, wanted to kind of reinforce that in our thinking. Look, I don't care what you're up against. I don't care what the odds are against solving this problem. It doesn't matter to me. When it comes to God, there's no such thing as odds. Everything is a sure bet, okay, because He is the great I Am, the great uh, omnipotent God. And He wants His people to understand that if we're going to walk by faith and be instruments that He might use to show Himself strong to this earth, we have to be people that believe in His power and trust Him. See? So that's the first thing. doesn't matter what crisis you're facing, financial, family crisis, marital, health, job-related, doesn't matter. We serve the God of the who's a problem solver. Uh, and of course, in that vein, the, the thing that we have to do then is approach our problems with a kind of, I don't know, a kind of um, excitement because we see them not as problems but as opportunities for God to really show himself strong through. And so the, our responsibility is not to have the ability to solve the problem but just have the faith to pray, to thank God, to bless the Lord for his word. And then like Jesus did, he blessed his father, gave thanks, then he broke the bread, and then the miracle took place. Our responsibility is to pray, to thank God for solving the problem. Even before we see anything begin to happen, we know that he will solve the problem, and we just, by faith, thank him and praise him. That's powerful. That's when things happen. But also I want you to see that the little boy, he's important. Because it really, if you think about it, he became the instrument through which that whole great multitude came to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. It was after this miracle that they really began to say, this is it, this is the guy, he's the Messiah. And they wanted to make him king, king of the Jews. That's what the Messiah was going to be. It was through this little boy, who didn't have much, but offered whatever little bit he had to the Lord, 
And God, the Lord, took it and blessed it and multiplied it. It was through that miracle that this whole multitude of people came to know that Jesus was their Messiah. And I think the lesson here is that no matter what little bit we have, if we offer to the Lord, He will use it. And through our lives, we'll help other people come to know that Jesus is real, that He is God. He is the Messiah, not only of Israel, but of all the earth. And it's through our little things that we give to the Lord. Think about it. You know, we think, what have I got to really give to? What have I got to offer to the Lord that he could really use? Well, because we're always thinking in terms of great numbers and great. I mean, the Lord saves people one at a time. So if you look at it in that respect, you don't have to have a whole bunch. I'm convinced it's the little things that we do, you know. We don't have much, but the little things that we do. It's the phone call we make to somebody who is sick. Somebody who doesn't know the Lord, but knows that we know the Lord. And they're hurting, or they're sick, or they're going through a crisis. And we take time to call and to care. Uh, it's the little thing, like the Sunday school class that you might teach. Or the chairs that you set up before church, or take down afterward. The card that you take time to write, or the phone calls I said that you take time to make, or just any one of a number of little things. I'm convinced the Lord will take those things and use them to bless a lot of people if we just offer them out of the right heart and don't, you know, just say, Lord, I don't have much, but I can take the time to care. I can take the time to do small things. I could cook a meal for somebody who's in the hospital that their family might have something to eat. I can, I can do. I can watch somebody's kids who's sick or whatever. There's so many little things that we can do to reach out to unbelievers. Sure, the body of Christ, we should do that for our brothers and sisters. But even beyond that, just little things that you think, well, what is that going to really do? I have heard so many stories of people that have said, you know what? It was the phone call that they made to me. You know what? That was the thing that God used to bring me to Him. So many little things that we think are so insignificant, but the Lord takes them and he uses them. And who knows if one of those people we touch doesn't go on to become a great evangelist. And you know what? I'm convinced that the fruit that they accrue in their ministry, we get part of that because we were used by God to touch them. And Jesus said, you know, you give a cup of cold water to one of my disciples in my name, you won't in any way lose your reward. God is an excellent record keeper. And so often we think it's, we don't have much, but you know, the Lord isn't asking for much. Just asking to do little things. That through those little things, people might come to know that He is their Messiah and their Lord and their God. And boy, I tell you, that's the thing that God has impressed upon me today when I was going over this story again, you know. Just somebody, this little boy, poor little guy, from a poor family, didn't have much, but he gave it willingly, and the Lord used it to touch a lot of people. That's really what it's all about. God help us to do the little things out of the right hearts. Let's pray.